to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube, and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play, or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. Welcome, I am Daria Brown, and today I'm excited to have Maribel Serrano Holder, who is a floor time speech language pathologist in San Francisco, who founded Logopedia Speech and Language Therapy, Inc which is a studio offering gender affirming voice training, pediatric speech and language therapy, early intervention, feeding and parent programs. She offers services in both English and Spanish and does a lot of pro bono work with the Spanish speaking transgender community. She's currently finishing up her certificate with the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, learning to be a DIR expert trainer. Welcome Maribel. Thank you, Daria. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I listen to your podcast all the time. And so it, it really is a big honor to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. And I have to ask about your necklace. Is that the infinity symbol for yes. neurodiversity? Yes, it's a neurodiversity symbol. I have it. I'm always uh, wearing it. Um, it's just it's close to my heart here. Yeah, it's I feel like it's a very validating thing to always have. I'm going to share my screen here on part of your website as we talk about the wonderful services you offer. And I will say out of all of the websites that I look at for DIR floor time services, yours really jumped out at me as being more progressive and cutting edge and with the times because of some of the things that the way you word things, the, the, the therapies that you're offering. And this month has been the ICDL DIR floor time conference where we've really had a theme of self-reflection on our community as DIR providers, listening to the voices of self-advocates, self, um, autistic self-advocates, and listening to marginalized communities and figuring out how we can be more equitable and how we deliver services. And one of the things that you do is you call your workplace a studio as opposed to a clinic. Yes, you know, I'm a speech language pathologist and my field itself is uh, very ableist um, and pathologizing of everything. And I felt that I didn't want to pair that with my space. And so um, I feel a studio is a very creative space. Um, and so I wanted to create a space that was creative and that brought that energy. Um, and that wasn't uh, pathologizing or ableist, that was a comfortable welcoming space. Um, so yes, I, it's, not a, it's not a clinic, it's a studio. And uh, when families come here or any client comes here, they're not patients, they're clients. Um, and, and they come to a safe space where they can be themselves, uh, where they can um, work on whatever they feel they need to work without any stigma, without any judgment, um, just really a truly safe uh, and welcoming space. That's wonderful. I, I absolutely love it. 
I love it. Um, maybe it'll take off and we'll hear about more DIR studios around the world. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I, I, I feel, you know, it is important to, to not pathologize and, and to create these welcoming, um, equitable spaces. And so um, that was really the whole focus with even opening up this space. You know, I've been working from home for throughout the whole pandemic. And even before that, I was going to people's homes. Um, and now having this brick and mortar space, I really wanted to to make it something welcoming for for everybody that comes in. You offer something called gender affirming voice training, which I hadn't been familiar with, but on top of that, through a DIR lens, which is so interesting to me. Can you tell us about how that started? What got you interested in that? And then tell us a bit about how it works. The transgender voice training for me, it, it all started um, as part of the neurodiversity um, training that I was undergoing and just my own self-reflection and my own um, process of self-identification, if you will. Um, and for the transgender community, uh, there's a usually about a three to th three to six times more likely to um, be either diagnosed with autism or to have uh, feelings of undiagnosed autism or to suspect um, an autism diagnosis. And so the work actually started more just in my involvement with the LGBTQIA community and just organizations, local organizations. And what I was finding is that most of the Spanish speaking trans communities were having a very difficult time accessing these services. And so being a speech and language pathologist, I had training in voice. And so I kind of started to learn more and really get a better, more in-depth training on how to work the voice. And not because I feel that transgender individuals need to change their voice. That's never something that I have subscribed to. But uh, what I was hearing within the community, especially the Latino community, um, Spanish speaking community, which, you know, are already marginalized and then marginalized again for being transgender, is that oftentimes it was a safety concern, not so much as I want to sound like a woman, but really um, it, it is a safety. It's like life or death for me. And so that's kind of how it started. I, I started, you know, going to talks uh, that local transgender, Spanish speaking transgender uh, organizations were offering and, and just really a becoming a part of the community, um, even though I myself am not transgender but just really being there and being a support. And so it just um, offering podcasts, webinars, information on uh, gender affirming voice training, um, and then just making myself accessible. I, I never pitched it as uh, you have to come in here and, you know, modify your voice. Never like that. It was just like, I'm here. If you if you want it, if you feel you need it, you know, I'm here. And so I teamed up with an organization here in San Francisco and another organization in Orange County, 
And um, so, yeah, I have like a, it's almost like a rolling scholarship where I will support two um, transgender individuals at a time from each organization, and I will provide uh, pro bono voice training if they so desire. And so, um, the way DIR kind of comes into this is, it I mean, it's all DIR. It's all client led. Um, I follow their lead. I don't determine what their voice will be because they are the masters of their voice and it's their instrument and they are the ones that are learning how to play this instrument um, and they are the ones that decide when, you know, when they feel that they have found their authentic voice. So the purpose for me of gender affirming voice training is to help and support and provide the tools for that person to find their authentic voice, whatever that will be. And sometimes it's not um, changing, you know, the different parameters of the voice. And sometimes really it's just about being there and just being present in the moment without the expectation of actually doing something. Um, so this work with the transgender community for me is a work of support and just providing access equitable access to a community that is already, um, you know, twice, sometimes three times marginalized. Um, so, you know, that's the big, a big tenet of, of my work is, is providing that for them. And on the website that I was showing, you separated out adolescent. Do you have both adult clients and younger clients as well? Yes, and, and with adolescent clients, it's different, right? Because you need parent participation. I like parent participation, but you need consent. And so um, I think especially with adolescent uh, teenagers who are exploring their identity and trying to figure out their gender identity, it can be a very just transition. It's a, it's a very difficult transition. Oftentimes it's, a, you know, and so the reason why it's separate is because there is more of that kind of holding the, the, the adolescent, but also within the confines of a family, whatever that family is, right? Sometimes it's parents and sometimes it's another adult support. Um, but I, we feel that it, that is important, an important part of that transition process is really the exploring. Um, and when it comes to the voice, it's, it is exploring the voice because the voice changes at around adolescence as well. And so it, it, it's kind of a supportive part of the, of the transition process. Um, for the adolescent. Um, not that it looks different, you know, the support is the same. We, we, we follow their lead, um, but it is, it does involve that, that parent component that, or that adult support component. And while we're on the topic of gender identity, I don't think the listeners can see on the YouTube video your Zoom label. Uh, I don't think that shows up in the recording, but you have she, her, Ella. And I assume Ella is Spanish. Ella. Ella. There, there's my ignorance of the Spanish language. My apologies. So I wondered if you can talk a little bit about pronouns. 
So here at Logopedia, we um, always uh, identify our pronouns. We ask people for their pronouns, not their preferred pronouns, because um, oftentimes with the transgender and gender uh, non-conforming community, it isn't a preference, you know, it is okay. a feeling that comes from inside. It's a part of the identity. And so I identify as a woman. And so my pronouns are she, her, ella. But my neighbor, who may be trans, may identify um, as a woman. And so she will use she, her, ella pronouns. Um, but they are not preferred. They are just her pronouns. Same as it would be for somebody who is non-binary. Right, they would use they them pronouns, but they are their pronouns, not their preferred pronouns. So yeah, pronouns are, are something that we use as identifiers. We don't assume, so we always ask, what are your pronouns? Uh, and whenever you know we're in a Zoom meeting, we always have our pronouns um, there. So that I think it's just kind of shedding light on the importance of respecting people's pronouns and recognizing that they may be different uh, than your own or different than what you would, I don't know, expect or perceive. Uh, and so I think that just goes with respecting, um, you know, people's identities uh, and how they, you know, see themselves and how they identify. Thank you for pointing that out, uh, because a lot of people really just don't know. And, and I hadn't heard about that before about it not, I mean, I understood that, you know, if someone says that this is their identity, you believe them, you don't question that. But I didn't think about when I said preferred pronoun, how important it is to just say pronoun. So thank you so much for educating me about that and pointing that out. No, no problem. Um, I mean, it's just, I think it's a common thing that that happens. Um, and, you know, I feel that it is important to to highlight that that it isn't a preference. It just, you know, it just is mm -hmm. um, just like, you know, any identity, <laughs> you know, um, name <laughs> something that we use to name ourselves. I think that that's important. You know, I I'm a big proponent of identity first. Um, and so same thing goes for identity first with regarding um, to pronouns, with regards to pronouns. It, it is very important to, to educate ourselves and to look for ways to educate ourselves because we can't expect the transgender community to educate us. Like that's so much labor and emotional labor and effort that goes into that when you know, we can find other avenues to educate ourselves. And I think respect is super, super, super important. And part of acceptance of different identities, whether, you know, that's neural identities or gender, ident gender identities, um, part of acceptance is education. Like, we have to educate ourselves. We have to base our biases and and really work towards doing better and so um i think that that's part of learning <laughs> you know it it is true part of learning is making mistakes but i think 
um, one of the biggest things is to learning from those mistakes um, and trying hard to not make those mistakes, especially when it comes to gender identity and the use of pronouns. Um, following people like AC Goldberg of Transplaining, very wonderful educator, uh, transgender issues, I think is another good avenue to, to information so that, you know. I'll put the link in the blog post as well for that. And it really, it echoes what we talked about in the Culture City podcast, um, Culture City provides sensory rooms and trains staff at large sports venues and other venues around sensory sensitivities. And one of the things that Daniel Platzman said in that podcast was he loves how the onus is not on the person with the sensory sensitivity, but the onus is on us to be better and to be inclusive and accepting and um, to understand. So. And like you said, educate ourselves. That's what um, Dr. Kong said was the first step is that they educate and, and, you know, ask questions like about sensory sensitivity so people can relate to it. So I think um, you're right. It, it is important and all of us continue, need to continue to be educating ourselves on, on these important issues. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. I, you put it best. The onus is on us. Absolutely. Um, you know, whether it is educating ourselves about race, about gender, about neurotypes, it is really on us. It, the labor should not be on, on those communities because already they, you know, they're marginalized and they suffer and they go through so much. And then to, on top of that, have to educate us. Um, that's, you know, it's very, it, it's just too much, too much for, for them. So I feel like it's important. The onus is definitely on us. You said it perfectly. I think we're going to see, uh, I, I hope we're going to see lots and lots of continued movements in the coming decades around this. I imagine DIR must give you such a wonderful framework because that kind of work, sometimes you might feel like you you want to consult with a licensed professional counselor or a psychologist or um, I maybe some of the people have access to that and some don't and you're working in your scope of voice but the DIR model provides so much for you to really provide that safety for them at your studio. Yes absolutely I mean most of the transgender voice work that I do is really about providing that safe space. Um, you know, yes, voice work happens, but it happens when it's supposed to happen for them, when they feel they're ready and at whatever pace they feel comfortable with. But mostly it's it's a supportive, supportive environment. And, and I feel for me, um, in my journey through the DIR floor time training, that has been one of the biggest things that I've taken, you know, that, that I can apply to any, uh, you know, community that I work with. So yeah, very, very powerful. Do you have any, uh, any big lessons that you've learned from working with this community? What have you noticed? What kinds of progress, progression have you seen? Have you, you know, meeting them where they are developmentally in, in sort of a different way than we think about with children, but it's still 
still going back to the model. Absolutely. You know, I think the biggest the biggest takeaway is that I don't measure progress. They do. Right. And so um, they decide how far they they want to go. And I'm just there as a guide. So they're driving and I'm just kind of telling them where they turn, but they've got full control. And that for me goes across all the areas that I that I work, you know, whether it's with the transgender community, with families, with children, adolescents, um, it really is about providing the supports and guiding, but letting them letting them have the power to drive and, and tell us where we're going. Um, and I feel that that's been a very, very successful way to to do what I do. Um, you know, I, I don't consider myself an expert. I feel that people are the experts in their own, you know, and parents are the experts in their children. And I know some things about communication that I can share, but at the end of the day, they know their children. And, you know, a transgender individual is the expert in their experience. So I may know some things about voice, um, about, you know, resonance and pitch and all those things, but they are the experts in their experience. And so I, they lead and I follow, you know, wherever that is. And so um, that's probably the biggest, um, you know, part of DIR that that has been the most powerful. Um, and then obviously, I mean, considering their individual differences and, and having the relationship. So um, part of that is really building a very strong relationship with clients. I feel, you know, I, clients come in and they're like family. And <laughs> anybody that comes in, it's like, we're family and I'm available. I, I literally am available pretty much all the time. And sometimes I get texts at one in the morning and I'm up because that's when I do my work and when I do my thinking. And so I'm there to answer a question. And a lot of people wouldn't do that, you know, they separate that, but um, I feel like that's my way of being present and, you know, and, and helping them feel or know that they're being supported because I'm there. Um, so it's just reliable also in a sense it must be so empowering for them because i know you've continued to say that they are the ones that are are know themselves best best and are making their decisions but sometimes along that path similarly when we're working you know when you're working with families and young children as a parent i'm the expert of my child but i don't feel like the expert I'm coming to the therapist to figure out what do I do? How do I interact with my child? And, and um, I wonder if sometimes when you're searching for your identity, if, if a transgender person is trying to figure out who they are and explore their gender identity, they might be looking to you as well because they're not sure. And I love how you said you sort of guide them along and really empowering them to find that voice inside of them because I imagine they need that confidence to do that. And you, the cocoon of this beautiful relationship that you form with them gives them that confidence to do that, whereas they might have not had that in other places before. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, it, vocal transition is, is, can be a very important part of the process. And so oftentimes, you know, clients come in and they don't know. <laughs> They're like, I don't know, but I know that I, you know, want to change a few things. And I never know what the end result is going to be. And, you know, neither do they. Um, and, you know, sometimes we just, it really is a coming in and playing with what our voice can do. Our voice is an instrument. I, in my opinion, it's the most powerful and beautiful instrument because you can shift. You can't do that with a brass instrument. You know, you can't do that with the sax. You can't do that with, you know, a flute, clarinet. Uh, they are what they are, but you can do that with the voice. And so it's a, it's a very, at least for me, I don't know, it's a very individual experience for everybody else, right? But for me, it's, it's really magical to watch, you know, the shift um, just in perspective. And I've had clients come in saying, I want to change this. And then once they start working, they're like, you know what, I'm happy with my voice. And I'm like, yay, you know, <laughs> success. Because, you know, I, I'm not here to change anything. I'm just here to support and guide. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I'm here to support and guide those, those people that feel that, that they want to modify anything in their voice but it's not there's no cookie cutter recipe or you know any particular way to do it um, that works for everybody and at the end um, you know for the most part they they always they find their voice and it has nothing to do with anything that I've done or said to them that oh that's your voice it's it's really they after a while they're like oh, okay you know this feels right. This, this feels like me. Yeah. This feels right. This feels like me or, or they'll listen to different voices too. We might do some exercise, like, you know, pick some voices that you feel, you know, kind of call to you, um, that you're drawn to. Um, and you know, and then they start doing that and then they come and, you know, we listen to different voices and, um, and, and then we start playing with the voice. So it's, it's <laughs> very play based. It's, it's, you know, the things, the types of exercises that we do to to change uh, different parameters of the voice are, are really quite um, fun, um, sometimes silly and, you know, and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, you know, but, but it is a very fun exploratory process um, to figure out, you know, what does my authentic voice sound like? Not what does a authentic voice sound like, but what does my authentic voice sound like? And, and that's how I, you know, go about with working with anybody that I work with, whether it's an adult or a child, it's, it's, everybody needs to find their authentic voice. If it's going to be, you know, something that emanates from, you know, all this, or if it's going to be something that emanates from, you know, a speech generating device. I don't know, but it's, it's very individual. It's very self-determined by the client, not so much by me. I love so much that you said it's playful and fun because I, I was thinking that when you were talking like, oh, it sounds like such a fun exploratory process. And um, hey, we choose play. That's what we do in DIR floor time. 
Um, now you brought up AAC devices and alternative and augmentative communication, and that's another service that is part of your studio. And it really, it, it flows in perfectly as the, the next topic, because you said like helping uh, non-speaking individuals find their voice. And can you talk a little bit about how that process works for you? I imagine there's a lot of similarities. You know, when I work with pre-verbal children, uh, for the most part, you know, we're always working towards spoken language, right? You know, most parents want their children to speak. And usually the way that I approach it is, you know, we don't know when that's going to happen, if it's going to happen. What we want to do is we want to give access, right, to communication. And so we're going to provide everything that is available to us. We're going to provide robust access to vocabulary um, because we do that with infants as they're born. You know, we talk to them, we, you know, and, and, and that's what we want to do also with those preverbal children is we want to provide access. So yeah, it's about providing access and then kind of you figure out what's going to work for them. So again, that's also very individual. What works for one child may not work for another child, but the importance is to, the key point is to provide that access and to, you know, give them the tools so that they can gravitate to whatever is going to be um, most effective for them and, you know, easier to access and use. So we are, we service predominantly uh, Spanish-speaking populations. And so because of that, most of the families that we serve um, are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Um, so not a lot of them have access to devices. So we've, um, we have a few devices here that we've accessed and we've, um, we provide, you know, tablets that have internet access and they already have some of the apps and we loan them out to families until we figure out another way to give them, you know, permanent access. But, you know, that's something that we're doing to try to um, bridge that gap, that equity um, gap, um, because we feel it's important, you know, and, and we see it very often, you know, families come in and they don't know that they can use these things, right? And they don't know how to even get to them. So it's just a, a nice way to kind of help bridge until we can find a more permanent uh, device. I did a podcast with Jolene Fernald about different devices and, and she tends to have her favorites, although she'll work with, you know, different ones. I was curious if you have ones that you feel are more um, empowering to the individual over others. You know, I, I mean, I like, uh, I like LAMP, LAMP Words for Life uh, is a good one. Um, a lot of my families use Cough Drop, which is uh, an actual app. Um, and what I really like about that is I can do a lot of um, changing things that's available in Spanish. I create my own uh, board for them and there's like direct communication. Um, they give um, the devices that I have already have it in there. And it's actually 
um, pretty, it's affordable and you can have it anywhere. So um, as opposed to like LAMP and Proloco to go, you have that as on a dedicated device, whereas this one, you can have it on your iPad, on your Android, on your Samsung phone. And so it gives much quicker access. So in the event that your tablet breaks down or, you know, stops working, you can access it on your phone, you can access it on your computer. So I really, really like that one. I don't know how popular it is, but I've really very much enjoyed that. And, you know, my families have as well. I will definitely link to it in the blog post at affectautism.com because I have not heard of it either. Um, so I think many of our listeners probably haven't either and might want to look into it. Yeah, and um, they are great. They have a great uh, support. So if anything, you know, if you delete something and you don't know what you did, you email them and, you know, Scott will email right back. And so they their customer service is pretty amazing. Oh, that's awesome. I also, I wonder about the bilingual families you mentioned. You serve a lot of Spanish-speaking families. They may or may not also be speaking English at home or thinking about wanting to have their children speak English for when they're in school. Um, how does that work with AAC devices? So most of, you know, the ones that I use, you can modify it to English and then you can toggle between the languages. So, you know, once, because we're in America, once they start school, everything kind of switches to English. Um, and uh, so with most apps, you know, or devices, you can you can toggle um, and you can do the same with with cough drop. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's not it hasn't been an issue. Um, usually when I when we model, we model in the dominant language of the home um, and the parent or the dominant language of the parent or the caregiver, um, you know, as we would with any bilingual a bilingual child bilingual family um so we use it just like we would use it in speech this is incredible work that you're doing you're really giving a voice to people who struggle to find their voice and their identity and on that topic when you were when we were talking about the transgender community i was also thinking in the back of my head a lot about masking because we hear from self-advocates all the time that, um, and, and people who are diagnosed later in life too, that they may not have known they were autistic because they've learned to mask in order to fit in. And I imagine there's a lot of pressure for the transgender community to mask, um, to fit in. So I guess earlier when you were saying you started to learn about neurodiversity and you were exploring your own neurotype, it makes me wonder if you decided that you think you're neurodivergent yourself. Great question. You know, yes, I think when I started my, my DIR floor time journey, um, and I've been educating myself on, you know, neurodivergence uh, for, for a while. And, um, but as I was doing floor time, <laughs> I, I was like, oh my God, you know, individual differences, you know, kept on coming up and I'm like, oh my God, oh, I do that. Oh, I do that too. I definitely do that. And, and so all these, I was identifying with a lot of what I was hearing 
mentioned. And so I'm like, whoa, am I? Could I be? And so I'm still in my process of, of exploring my neurotype. Um, I don't know exactly what it is. I, I Well, I, I can say ADHD is definitely one of them. But I'm still, you know, in that process of, of determining whether or not autism is one. And I feel that a lot of it is because I am such a good masker and I've been a very good masker all of my life. Um, I feel that girls or, you know, children identified as girls at birth um, are usually more social and very good at masking. And so, um, yeah, I started to kind of see that a lot of a lot of different uh, signs of masking in my life. And I, I still, you know, I'm still exploring it. I'm still trying to figure out it's the whole process of um, identification um, is, well, medical identification, if you will, is very expensive. And so I, I believe very much in self-identification and I'm just still trying to really determine and, and explore that part of my, my neurotype. But for sure, I, I really believe strongly that I am an ADHDer um, and I'm still, you know, exploring autism and yeah, just still trying to figure all that out. I, I mean, every day I discover like, ooh, yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely masking or, you know, different things that I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been, I hadn't realized that. And oh, now I see it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a process for me and I'm, I'm being very gentle with myself. And, you know, as I as I go through this and, and seeing it, you know, even seeing it in my progeny, <laughs> You know, so I'm like, oh, yeah, you got that from me, girl. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, it's a it's a constant exploration. And um, but I think that I feel strongly that because of that, um, a lot I have I'm more impassioned. I don't know if that is a word, but I am more impassioned in this work that I do. Um, because I am also, you know, I, I have a unique experience myself. So when you start to think about these things um, and realize the struggles that other people are dealing with, and you can relate even on a small little sliver, I think it helps so much in the work that you're doing and, and helps you um, solidify that uh, sense of safety for them because you're so empathetic to um, what they're going through, even if you didn't have a lot of the obstacles that um, they might be dealing with. I think because I'm still in that process of, of exploring, I don't often identify or self-identify to my clients. I will when I sense this you know when I sense that parents really see the disability, um in you know instead of the competence <laughs> you know and the the what we can aim for and you know and what we can achieve um and i will you know at times disclose um but i'm also feeling all, 
oftentimes feeling like, oh, maybe, you know, it's crossing a line. But but I feel sometimes families need to hear that, you know, and 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 your clients need to know that you that you identify and you relate because I mean, the work of DIR is engaging and relating, you know, it's it's about meeting people where they're at. And if you can find one thing that you can relate with someone on, I mean, that just shifts the work, I feel. And um, yeah, you know, I'm still in my process of learning. I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish this expert trainer uh, certification and I just feel like I need more, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's never going to stop. Learning is never going to stop and, and learning how to better support community. That's, that's just never going to stop. It's going to be an ongoing process, an ongoing journey for me. Um, and I'm super, super excited. I mean, I'm, Again, still learning about myself and still learning about everything, still learning about floor time and, um, you know, how to be more um, neurodiversity affirming, um, trans affirming, um, how to be in general affirming of people's experience and, and people's uh, lives. I think that that's very important and it's something that I continue to, to strive for on a daily. I find myself in the role sometimes of being a bridge because with the ICDL's parent support group that I facilitate, I might mention things like, my son is just like me in these ways. But if parents are new, they still might be thinking this autism came out of nowhere. And for the most part, it's genetic. And we know that it's, you know, you inherit your Kathy Platzman said with me in a podcast, you inherit your family, your parents' nervous systems, and it may manifest in different ways. But for a lot of people, if, if you didn't have any autistic people in your family that you knew about, uh, even if they may have autistic traits or they may have uh, be neurodivergent in some way, it was never talked about before. So we didn't know about it. And so I think at first, sometimes parents are a little bit scared or hesitant and they don't want like, no, 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 no. There's something wrong. I need to fix it. Um, you know, I'm fine, but I, if my child turns out like me, that's okay, but they're struggling in all these ways. And so it, it's trying to be that bridge to, you know, meet them where they're at, like we do in floor time, meet them where, they are and and just kind of see you know so it's a balance between um you know letting them know about you relate with their experience and the experience of the child and then at the same time you understand the parents concerns and and hopefully through the process come to a place where um acceptance is is uh in everyday life. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that because for a while I'm like, oh, maybe it's just within the community that I work. Um, because I remember autism or any type of neurodivergence was kind of labeled as, oh, quirky. <laughs> you know, my brother's, oh, he's just kind of quirky. And so, it, it, yeah, it's hard because even though one in 54 
are identified now, that's still a, a lot that, that are not, you know, identified. And, and a lot before that weren't identified. So it's hard to see and look at oneself when, it, it, you know, prior to now, it was a much bigger identification gap, if you will. And what are we identifying? I mean, what we're identifying right now is still very based on all these false narratives that exist. So I think that's where we're going to get a lot of clarity in the next decade or so. And I hope so, you know, because it is the identification process. <clears throat> it's still based on the medical model. And we know that the medical model is very pathologizing. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting in this work, really just being that bridge, you know, and, and helping parents just be present without, you know, focusing on fixing. And I, I, I feel that that comes up a lot, you know, come fix my child. Um, and I don't have, I don't have a little, you know, magic wand and I don't have a little pill that you can give him or anything like that. You know, all I have is myself and what I know and you know my empathy for the lived experience of that particular parent and also my empathy for the lived experience of that particular client you know and supporting a family member a loved one a caregiver um, through this process of learning how to be there for their child, how to be present, how to engage, how to find that joy. That is so, it's, I mean, it's worth more than I can describe in words. Um, and I think once, once they find it and once that bulb, you know, lights up, they're like, oh, I get it. And so then everything else, like, oh, I have those same tendencies. It just kind of happens naturally instead of like, me identifying it in the beginning or helping them identify it from the start. It just kind of happens as part of the journey when that light bulb just kind of lights up and they're like, oh, now I get it. And, it, and it's, it's a very powerful moment, you know, and, and, and it's not just one moment. It's like a series of moments. And it's just really wonderful to be part of that process. And just having this wonderful strengths-based model where we can focus on what's working and focus on where we can connect and where we find joy and what we're comfortable uh, doing together and, and building from that is what I love about DIR Floor Time. Me too. I mean, I just, I felt when I found DIR Floor Time, I felt like I found my people. Like, this is it, you know, and I've been wanting to to do this training for quite a while. Um, and when uh, ICDL had their conference in San Francisco in 2018, I was working for an organization at that time and I took the entire team over to the conference and it was wonderful. And I'm like, oh, I really just want to do this training, but I can't take all this time off, you know, to go to some other part of the country. And so in, in a sense, the pandemic, when it hit, it was a bit of a blessing in disguise for me because it allowed me to be able to do this. And so my whole training has happened 
throughout the pandemic. And um, it's just been such a wonderful journey. I, I've, I've got wonderful mentors and, um, and it's, it continues to be a learning, learning journey for me. I'm yeah, very excited about it. Well, thank you so much, Maribel. It's been wonderful meeting you and hearing about the wonderful services that you provide uh, serving your community and speaking of your wonderful mentors, um, we both are re we're recording this podcast right before Gretchen Kamke presents at the ICDL conference. So we're excited to watch her presentation. She's an amazing occupational therapist uh, with the DIR home program at ICDL. Um, so I, I hope to have her on a podcast soon as well. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. Um, I am going to share my screen one more time to show your website and I'll definitely put links at, um, at the podcast. So this is Logopedia and she has this wonderful quote from Rumi, the message behind the words is the voice of the heart. And here's a link to services. If you want to find out more about the team, here's Maribel and her colleagues here and um, services and even a blog. So um, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. And best of luck finishing your expert training course and your future learnings. Thank you. Thank you, Daria. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful, wonderful spending this time with you and getting to chat. Um, yes, I'm so excited to go watch Gretchen right now. It's just <laughs> very excited. Thank you again. Parents and caregivers, every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning offers free parent support meetings. These drop-in meetings help support families using a floor time approach with their children. We are here for you when you need the support, guidance, or just to share stories and experiences. These meetings are open to parents from anywhere around the world. Come whenever you can. Register at icdl.com parents. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.